This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Avery Kreibold, with Innovating a Bright Future, where I walk through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. This episode is a bonus episode, and it's actually not really going to be about that. Today, I'm going to take you through what I believe to be the most important political aspects of climate action. This is a bonus episode, so if you don't want to listen to it, that's all right. I get it. It might not be the most interesting to you. I know it isn't for me either, but it's also vitally important to have at least a basic understanding of these topics. I'm going to try and keep it as interesting as I possibly can. Please enjoy. First off, let's talk about the U.S. The U.S. is one of the most polarized countries in the entire world. On a lot of topics, but climate is one of the most prominent. With the exit of Donald Trump and the entrance of Joe Biden into the office of president, there's new hope for U.S. climate policy. The first thing that Joe Biden did on his first day in office was rejoin the Paris Agreement, the global framework for climate action that I'll go into a bit more later. This, coupled with his declaration of 100% renewable energy by 2035, set the tone for his term and showed that he's taking climate action seriously. Now, moving on to the legislation. One of the most important pieces of climate legislation in the U.S. is actually from 1970. It's called the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act didn't actually focus on greenhouse gas emissions. It stopped the use of chemicals like chlorofluorocarbons, and hydrofluorocarbons that were extremely harmful for humans, but also up to 1,200 times worse than CO2 for our climate. Along with establishing the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Air Act implements strict limits on emissions from transport, industry, and energy sectors, and has the ability to implement penalties for violations of these policies, as well as completely overhauling a corporation's or local government's policies in order to implement their own rules. The Dodd-Frank Act is an act from 2010 and it also has no official impact on greenhouse gas emissions. Dodd-Frank is going to be helpful now that Biden is in power because it grants the executive branch of government the power to prohibit and inhibit investment in risky businesses like fossil fuels through fees and taxes in order to redirect that money to more sustainable means like renewable energy sources. Now you've probably heard of the Green New Deal recently, but it may surprise you to find out that the Green New Deal has existed in the EU since around 2000. The Green New Deal has recently become more popular because of the well-documented actions of political activists in the Sunrise Movement especially their sit-in in in Nancy Pelosi's office on November 13th, 2018. This bill that's being proposed to the government, but not officially adopted yet, calls for 100% renewable energy by 2030, 40% emission reduction by 2030, and sustainable transformation of agriculture, transport, heating and cooling, and industry. The bill also projects that it will create 20 million jobs in this process. 
Now, moving on to Canadian policy, though Canada has many offshoot programs that deal with sustainability and climate, their overarching policy is the Federal Sustainable Development Strategy. It's Canada's direct response to the UNFCCCs, the Worldwide Global Structure for the Future. The Federal Sustainable Development Strategy sets out 13 goals managed by ministers of the administration and focuses on everything from green technology research and development, conservation, and creating jobs by implementing renewables and making renewable energy available for everyone on a whole-scale sale. The Sustainable Development Strategy also commits to 30% emissions reductions by 2030 and gets rid of all coal power, simultaneously doubling investment in clean technology from 2015 to 2020. The European Union doesn't have one distinct law like Canada does, but it has a framework. The goal of this framework is now to reduce emissions by 55% by 2030 and achieve complete carbon neutrality by 2050. The framework also introduces rules to reduce emissions in vehicles and reduce land use. There's no specific limits on individual parties in the Union, but there is a carbon credit program, capping emissions and allowing trading of credits to maintain proper emission limits, which will further be explored right now, actually. So now we're moving on to the global initiatives and frameworks for climate action. Carbon credit programs are not actually a global initiative, but they are an initiative that's being implemented all over the world. Systems like California's cap-and-trade program and the EU carbon credit program are some examples of these carbon credit trading programs. Within these programs, a country, state, nation, or institution, or even a collective like the European Union, puts into place strict limits on emissions. These limits are not flexible and they actually decrease each year to combat climate change. Each party in this area or group is then given a certain amount of credits, which basically allows them to produce a certain amount of carbon. If companies go over this, they're penalized through fines and restrictions, but they can buy carbon credits or produce carbon credits by participating in climate initiatives. Climate initiatives are things like planting trees, or carbon capture, or renewable energy, and they're produced when carbon is actually taken out of the air. These carbon credits can then be sold to companies who overproduce carbon in order to normalize the total emissions of the country. The Montreal Protocol of 1987 is effectively the first meaningful global legislation on climate. The Montreal Protocol prevented the use of ozone-destroying chemicals like chlorofluorocarbons and didn't actually have any effect on greenhouse gases, but was amended in 2016 in order to prevent the use of hydrofluorocarbons, which are the ones that are 1,200 times as bad as CO2. The Kyoto Protocol of 1997, a decade later, was the first legislation to act on greenhouse gas emissions. The Kyoto Protocol primarily targeted developed countries to reduce emissions of harmful greenhouse gases by up to 8% by 2012, introduce global carbon credit trading, and limit emissions from vehicles and industry. The Kyoto Protocol overall mostly failed because it targeted developed countries instead of countries like China and India, and it wasn't a very wholesale approach to climate change. The Paris Agreement, however, is basically the new and improved Kyoto. It came into being in 2015, it's signed by 175 countries, 
and it sets the overarching goal of reducing global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The Paris Agreement provides goals, monitoring framework, as well as investment and acceleration of technology and renewable energy, and although it doesn't obligate changes, it does allow for adjustments in trade agreements between countries who do agree and don't agree with Paris Agreement targets. Paris Agreement provides frameworks and timelines, which is perhaps the most important part of this, because it requires member countries to reevaluate their climate policy every five years. It also provides incentives for policy and projects to encourage acceleration of technology, and it even provides funding for some climate projects, especially in those developing countries. In the same fateful year of 2015, all the UN member states adopted the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. It recognized climate change as an immediate and extreme threat to our world and pledges to act against it by achieving global carbon neutrality by 2050. The agenda sets out 17 SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, which are overarching goals involving climate, public health, justice, conservation, and collaboration. They provide exact goals of what needs to be done by 2030, and provide databases, resources, organization, and even funding to some projects in order to achieve these goals. The UN Global Compact is a network organization of corporations, businesses, and firms that act outside of government control who are also committed to achieving goals set out by the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement. Parties involved get support from the UN itself as well as their national governments through funding, tax breaks, and subsidies, and also helps in networking within the collective in order to achieve the most sustainable practices possible. The Greenhouse Gas Protocol, the next piece of legislation, is similar to the Global Compact, which is an international organization setting standards, measurements, tools, and resources for anyone to adhere to the protocol. Countries, corporations, cities, individuals, municipalities, anyone. There's no solid rules or regulations, but it's a set of recommendations that absolutely anyone can follow. Since the Kyoto Protocol was first implemented in 1997, climate policy has grown 2,000%. This shows massive growth in the areas that we most need to focus on, and it's really encouraging to see that we're going in the right direction. But it's also important to be aware that even with all of these policies, the Paris Agreement, the Sustainable Development Goals, the UN Global Compact, all of them, we are not on track to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. In order to meet this goal, we need to continue to accelerate our policy, set more ambitious goals, not less, exceed the expectations, not fall short. It's important to stay active in this social aspect of climate change, to incentivize our politicians and our corporations to comply with these regulations, and to exceed these regulations. Get out and protest, spread awareness via social media, have conversations, do research, communicate with your representatives, anything you can do helps. Make sure that if this is something you care about, you get out and vote. It's the most important thing you can possibly do. Vote. Please vote. Well, if you've made it this far, congrats. 
That was probably not as interesting as usual, so I want to tell you something about Bhutan really quick. While all of us in the West struggle to stop emitting these insane amounts of CO2, over in the Himalayas, near Nepal, the small country of Bhutan is considered to be the greenest, happiest, and most climate-positive nation in the world. They have policies in place to ensure that the tree cover of their country never falls below 60%, they focus on sustainable growth instead of widespread industrialization, and they're considered to be one of the happiest countries in the entire world. Their carbon footprint overall is 2.2 million tons, while their forests provide a carbon sink of 6 million tons. This means that they're effectively pulling out 3.8 million tons of carbon per year. They are the first climate-negative country in the entire world. Now this isn't just because they're some rundown country. Bhutan's government provides free education, healthcare, and electricity, and subsidizes sustainable practices while protecting their wildest and most reserved natural habitats. Bhutan is an example of unrestrained prosperity. Not wealth, not pleasure, not competition, but it's an oasis of sustainable, natural, content living. And that about wraps it up. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're interested in reading more into any of these topics, the links will be in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this episode, I want you to do one thing. Don't have to share it on social media. You don't have to tell the whole world about it. If you did enjoy it, share it with one person who might also enjoy it. Tell them your favorite moment from the show and make sure they listen to it. If you want to reach out with your reactions, ideas, questions, or anything else, go to my website, innovatingabrightfuture.com, or send an email to innovatingabrightfuture at outlook.com. Thank you again for being here with me. Stay innovative, and I'll see you on the next one.